This is Thomas Whaley, New York State Teacher of the Year, recognized by NPR as one of the 50 great teachers and author of Leaving Montana. You're listening to the New Teacher Podcast. If you're a new teacher interested in hearing about the latest tips and tricks to inspire you in the classroom, you've come to the right place. The New Teacher Podcast features interviews with award-winning classroom teachers, the latest authors, and educational leaders recognized for their proven teaching techniques and strategies. Hear the stories of their success and failure. To listen to past episodes, view show notes, or to contact us, please visit our website at newteacher.org. Now here's your host, Anthony Arno. Hello and welcome to the New Teacher Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Arno, and I'm so glad that you can join us here today. It is my hope that you will become inspired by hearing nationally recognized teachers talk about their successes and failures in the classroom. This is our sixth episode today, and we have Thomas Whaley, who is both a New York State Teacher of the Year and one of NPR's 50 Great Teachers. In addition, Tom has also written the book, Leaving Montana, which has received all types of awards, which we'll talk about. Tom is a second grade teacher on Long Island, New York. After listening to the podcast, I want to invite you to subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave us a comment. We will be picking one lucky winner to win a signed copy of Tom's book, Leaving Montana. Or you can visit our website at newteacher.org and leave a recorded message, which we'll play back on a future episode. I hope to hear from you real soon. And now, here's my talk with Tom. My guest today is Thomas Whaley, a second grade teacher on Long Island who was recently featured on NPR's 50 Great Teacher series and a New York State Teacher of the Year. As if that weren't enough, Thomas has also published a novel, Leaving Montana. Leaving Montana has won many awards including a gold medal in the Reader's Choice Award in the general fiction category. Thomas, thank you for joining us today on the New Teacher Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Thomas, do you have a uh, personal story about a teacher that inspired you as a student, and what do you remember the most about them? Well, you know, it, it was it was very hard for me to pinpoint just one. Uh, I was extremely lucky in my entire elementary, middle school, and high school uh, career um, having amazing teachers. Uh, however, um, I went to a very small elementary and middle school. Uh, the, we only were a K through nine um, uh, school, um, so most of us had the same teachers. Uh, you know, twenty to thirty of us had the same teachers from kindergarten all the way up through ninth grade. And you know, as a young child, you you know the, the formative years are most important. And you know, unfortunately, many students come from uh, backgrounds where there's some family dysfunction and trouble. So when I was younger, there just happened to be some. And when I was in uh, third and fourth grade. Um, it had become a very low point in my life. And the teachers there um, that I had, Mrs. Schoner, um, who actually is married now as Mrs. Murray, and Mr. Mason, they recognized um, that change in my confidence and stability. And they they really did go out of their way to make sure that I felt safe and I was surrounded by active learning um, 
a lot of happiness in the classroom, a lot of uh, the uh, of the emotional attention um, that most children need. That sometimes um, teachers forget to zone in on. Um, you know, as being you know being a teacher, you you zone in on a lot of the academics, and you it's hard to recognize. Um, the emotional distress that some children have, especially if they're trying to put on a happy face. So I was very, very lucky to have those teachers um, in my formative years um, to help keep that uh, positive energy in me. Tell us about the moment that you decided you wanted to become a teacher. Well, you know, again, that was that was a transformation. I had always wanted to be an elementary school teacher. Um, when I went away to college um, and attended Marymount University in Arlington, Virginia, I actually had been accepted to a five-year master's program in elementary education. And after about two years of of you know going for that degree, um, I think there had become such a reputation. Um, a stigma per se on how um, teachers' salaries were lacking and how hard it was for teachers to survive with, you know, changes in, you know, the price of homes and taxes and, and, you know, contracts. So I kind of went on that bandwagon of, you know, I wanted to make more money. And I think when you're young, you know, between the ages of 18 and 22, the dollar signs always do, uh, kind of motivate you. Um, and sometimes you take the wrong path. And that's exactly what I did. I ended up changing my career and went into communications and ended up working in DC for a while, um, for some nonprofits and then ended up in New York city. Um, while I was taking the train back and forth from New York city, catching, you know, a five forty in the morning and getting home, you know, at seven, between seven and eight o'clock at night, you get to know the same people. And, you know, we're all dragging ourselves with our coffee in the morning and kind of staring at each other and have small talk because we're exhausted and still waking up. And then we're having a beer or two on the train on the ride home, you know, wishing that we were home earlier and, you know, enjoying, let's say, happy hour with our friends or um, not having to bring, you know, a briefcase full of work home. And as I was talking and getting to know these people, a lot of them had families And um, at this point in my life, I really hadn't thought about the concept of having a family, but I knew that I wanted one. And a lot of them weren't actively involved in their children's lives. They were getting home when their children were just about to go to bed. They weren't experiencing the home time with homework, seeing their soccer games. And that's around the time when I started realizing that teaching was definitely what I should have done. It was the path that I should have taken. Um, the, you know, working in the city, the corporate rat race, um, I felt like I wasn't really making much of a difference and wanting to be a family man and wanting to change, you know, the lives of children and have children involved in my life. Um, I decided to go to school at night, um, get off the train and head to Dowling and take classes at night. And within 14 to 16 months, I was certified. And within being certified two weeks later, I was offered a job. So somewhere out there, one of our listeners might be in a career that has nothing to do at all with teaching, like the one you were once in. What are some of the first steps that they can take to maybe begin a career in the classroom someday? Well, you know, it takes a lot of soul searching because the first thing that you really need to do is you really need to decide what avenue of education you really is really right for you. 
Um, you know, a lot of people enter elementary school and then when they're doing their student teaching experiences or taking classes, they realize that they're really, their passion is really in the secondary education. Um, some people decide that they really would pursue educating, um, adults in a college setting. So I think one of the things that you really need to do is you really need to see if, uh, reach out to friends, friends of friends and see if any teachers that you may know, um, would invite you into their classrooms. I think going into a classroom um, and observing how a classroom is run, um, the energy levels in the classroom, um, the uh, you know uh, how you know it's not all about education and witnessing all the other things that happen in a classroom that they don't teach you. Um, in school, when you're becoming a teacher, I think those are the first steps in realizing exactly what type of education you're interested in. And then right. once you just, once you see that you, that, you know, you, that you've got those butterflies in your stomach and you see the kids running around and you see the learning and the interaction, I think in that moment, when you feel it and you feel that connection, start to take some courses. Um, you know, I think the first thing that you need to do is you need to plan out your life. If you already have another job, you know, the whole idea of quitting your job and starting over again and taking classes um, is very is a very difficult thing to do. As you know, and I know, starting to change your career um, later on in your late 20s, early 30s can be a very difficult thing um, when you're boggled down with bills and That's right. responsibility. So taking a class here and there and allowing yourself to realize that you will ultimately reach that goal, but it may take you a little bit longer than the 18 to 22 year old who can, you know, invest their full time right. education. Right. I don't know if our listeners know this, but I too entered the teaching profession in my late twenties and it was by fluke in Brooklyn, but originally out of college, I was a social worker with uh, disabled adults and both jobs are just as rewarding, but just two different types of uh, responsibilities. So basically what Thomas just said is whether you're a student or you are in a career of another type, try and reach out to a, to a, a teacher that maybe you had or maybe one of your child's teachers and just ask them if you could visit the classroom. And let me tell you, I'm sure most teachers would be honored that someone like yourself might be interested in possibly entering the greatest profession of all time. Would you agree, Tom? I absolutely agree. Um, you know, even, you know, even being a, you know, a teacher helper, you know, and, uh, you know, attending events and helping the teacher out, you really get a feel of, of what it's like to, to, you know, mimic a teacher, walk along with them, be in their shoes and see if it's right for you. What's one thing a new teacher can do tomorrow in their classroom to become more effective as a teacher? Well, that's a really good question. One of the things that I think is most important that that lacks um, in, you know, not that it lacks, but that a lot of teachers tend to, to uh, forget to do, um, even though they would love to, is, is the whole concept of goal setting and reflection. Um, it's, it's something that I've been doing for the last couple of years, more so this year. Um, and I'm seeing a huge change in the effectiveness in the classroom. Me as a teacher, students as learners, um, even students as communicators with each other. And how I, are those set? Is that written or just mentally on the way to school? Well, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a whole facet of, of, of um, 
it's a whole facet of, of learning. So when, when, you know, when you're teaching, you know, when you're teaching and when you're setting goals in the classroom, I think a lot of the times we become very overwhelmed and our goals become too big. Yes. You know, what we're going to finish by the end of the week, the end of the month, the end of the year, um, where, you know, when you're talking about primary level students, you know, their, their minds, yes, are, are like sponges. However, we don't want to overwhelm them with goals. We want them to set their own attainable goals, small goals, goals that, that we know that they can reach by the end of the week. And when you allow children um, to set their own goals, you sit down and you discuss those goals with them. It could be, I'm going to remember to use capitals and periods um, by the by the end of the week. I'm going to look over my writing and check for proper spacing. Um, there's a constant success. They're always feeling success. They're able to reach these goals and they're able to reflect on them. You know, if they didn't reach the goal, you can sit down and discuss with them what it is they need to do to reach the goal the following week. And they become um, they, they start to own their own learning. They start to own the, their own goals. They set them, they, they set them, they reach them, they feel success with them. And when you're all sitting around and collaborating and discussing and reflecting on your work and the students are reflecting on their work, they become much more, um, it becomes, it, it becomes natural for right. them to be lifelong learners and risk takers. Right. So you know, I would say that any new teacher should really teach the students to set attainable goals for themselves, have, have high expectations for the students, but allow them to reach those small goals, celebrate them, and have students reflect on their learning. That's great advice for a new Thank teacher. You. Yes. Well, NPR named you as one of the top 50 teachers, which is quite an honor. And in the piece, they highlighted your classroom and you spoke about creating a sense of community. What is it exactly when you create a community in the classroom? How can a teacher go about creating a sense of community? Well, a, a sense of community, I mean, you know, you always think about classroom management and you're thinking about, um, you know, getting the children into a procedure at the beginning of the year. But I, I firmly believe that one of the most important things you need to do at the beginning of the year is is it, each new year should be a tabula rasa for all students. You know, sometimes students have um, immaturities, especially in, in, in the primary grades, where they become... Um, a little bit too self-critical. Um, they're the kid who who can't listen well. They're the one that's not able to focus. They're not a good reader. They're not a good writer. And you know, when you have children coming in with these, these self-stigmas, it it can cause a problem with creating a sense of community. So what I like to do at the at the onset of the year is to establish what I like to call an open discussion, and um, the children are able to learn that I respect all of them as individuals and that they can have good and bad days just as I do. Um, they have strengths and weaknesses just like I do. So I try to share my strengths, my weaknesses with them, the things that get me cranky in the morning. <laughs> what gets you cranky in the morning? Um, what are your favorite parts of the day? Uh, what type of homework scares you? And when you sit there and you have these open discussions with the children, they begin to share with each other and give, give advice to each other. And once we've established that sense of community in the classroom, that we are a family, we are our own community, 
um, and we are all here to help each other, the level of respect really is unfounded. It, it's, it's amazing. And then once I get that established sense of community in the classroom, what I do is I work um, hand in hand with the social worker um, in the building and we do something called open circle and it, it's a great program. Um, I had helped her out with it two years ago and slowly she, the other teachers in the building have been inviting it into their classroom as well. And what we do is we all sit in a big circle and it's once a week and we discuss our feelings about things. We discuss things that make us frustrated. We talk about the positive ways to solve problems, to be a better citizen, um, to to learn how to help each other, to, you know, it's, it's just really, it's just, it's teaching them to be the best that they can be under all different types of emotions and circumstances. And when children can respect each other and understand what each other is feeling, it does create a sense of family and classroom community in the classroom that's extremely strong. Um, and once you've established that, the learning is just natural, you know, right. uh, it becomes a part of their everyday to help each other and to co-teach and peer teach. And they also learn to accept each other's criticisms because they know that they're giving them to each other as suggestion. And, um, and it's not as a negative, you know, a negative, um, you know, they're not looking to ridicule. Right. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, to me, that's always worked for me and it also helps me become a better teacher, you know, to lead the community. So that, that's, that's what I like to do. And now you teach second grade, and most of your students are ESL students. How do you establish and maintain good communication with their parents if English is not their primary language? Well, luckily, uh, Patchogue Medford schools, as well as you know many other schools on Long Island, um, but Patchogue Medford in and of itself is amazing with the amount of support that we have for our for our L students, our ESL students. Um, this year, I have. I have eight students in my class. Last year, I had more. It really depends um, on, you know, the, the grade coming up, how many students we have who are um, bilingual. However, um, being able to communicate with the families is extremely important. And one of the things that um, they do in, the, in our building is we have a co-teacher. So, you know, I have a teacher who comes into my classroom every day and we work together on making the children feel confident and and lower their frustration levels with having to deal with learning um, in a dual language situation. Um, a lot of these children, um, the Spanish is the primary language at home. So what we need to do is make sure that we're communicating with the family constantly and using, you know, me being able to use the other teachers in the building who are fluent in Spanish, right. um, translating letters, making phone calls, and also using um, a lot of dual language um, literature in the classroom. So one of the things that I like to do is I like to make sure that the parents um, are able to feel it, it included in their child's education, a vital part of their child's education. So I have a lot of books in the classroom that are that are quite interesting, and um, the, the parents are very receptive and love them. You know, it'll be one story. Once one side of the book will be, let's say, the Three Little Pigs, and it'll be in English. If you flip the book over. The book is now the same exact story, but it's all written in Spanish. Oh, cool so beans. It is. It's fantastic. And the children are so overjoyed. The Spanish children are so overjoyed with it because they know that they can bring it home and they can read it to their family. 
and then it can be flipped over and the parents wow. can read it to them. So it, it really creates um, such a sense of ownership in their child's education and it'll, it, 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 it makes them, you know, much more confident in reaching out to me if they have any concerns or needs. Um, a lot of the times, if there's a language barrier, some of the parents feel a little nervous yeah. to, to communicate with you because they feel like they're, they're not being able to get their point across. So when you, when they have, you know, when they have all of these materials coming home that they can now work on with their children, it, they become, they become very excited in the, in the process. Um, It does. It opens up a lot of really good communication, which I think is really, really important. Absolutely. Um, Also, one of the things that's really important is that we, we don't want the children to lose their native language. You know, these, these children are going to grow up to be the perfect UN candidates. <laughs> you know, um, at this age, they're already bilingual. So one of the most important things that I tell the parents is that they need to continue to speak and use their language at home while the children are still learning the English language, because it's, it's vital for the children to have both. Right. Um, and I think that's an extremely important thing that the parents need to understand. And when they understand that you appreciate their native language and you want it to be used at home, it really does make them extremely happy. Right. Now, you're a highly effective teacher, but what was a big mistake that might have taken place mm. in your teaching career? And what did you learn from that mistake? <laughs> Well, uh, you know, it, it, it's definitely in the, you know, the way you communicate. Um, one of, you know, one of the biggest differences, uh, you know, working in a corporate setting and an educational setting is you have to really, uh, learn to not be so assertive and short and to the point. Um, you know, when you're, when you're working in a, in a fast paced, corporate setting, you know, everything is done in a a quick email or a quick memo. Um, There's not a lot of time to talk unless it's a staff meeting sort of thing. But in elementary education or any sort of education, you need to learn the proper way to present yourself, whether it be in a a phone call, in a quick face-to-face, a parent just happens to be in the building and they want to quickly talk to you for a minute. You can't roll your eyes. You can't look like it's bothering me in this very minute because, you know, after a long day of working, sometimes you're tired, but you know what? They're still the parent and they're very interested. And when they come to you, you really have to take the time to listen to them. So, you know, for me, I'm a very huge, I'm a huge communicator via email. And for me, it's because I can always go back and rehash and look at what the parents want to know. And, you know, I want to make sure that my response is thorough. So there were one, there was, there was this one time where, you know, I had responded back and we have to remember an email does not have any tone. No. So if you're responding in a short to the point sort of way, memo style, right style, it could be perceived as cold and uncaring and it could be a turnoff. And there was once or twice where, you know, I was, you know, my goal was to get back to the parent immediately at the end of the day and not have them wondering overnight, why didn't Mr. Whaley get back to me? So there was once or twice where I would send a quick email and then the email was, would be misconstrued because it wasn't me talking on the phone in a soothing voice saying, Let's figure this out. Let's work on this together. Don't stress about this. 
Um, so that was, a, that was a learning experience for me because when you're 27 and you're going from a fast paced memo based society, uh, you know, in, in a workplace and all of a sudden you're going to a calmer, let's negotiate, let's collaborate, let's cooperate, let's figure out how to make this work for your child. Your language skills have to be a right. Thomas, in addition to teaching, you've authored the book, Leave in Montana. Leaving Montana has won many awards, including a gold medal in the 2015 Reader's Award in the General Fiction category, 2015 Outstanding First Novel Award from the Independent Authors Network, and the 2015 Eric Hoffer Award for Small Press Published Work. Tell us a bit about the book and what was the inspiration behind it. Uh, um, okay. Well, you know, I, I, I've always wanted to be a writer and I've been dabbling in writing, uh, for quite some time. My, my originality was with children's books in which I have a lot of them. Um, and in the process of trying to find representation with the children's books, um, I had found out that I had, um, some family in Montana that I was unaware of, uh, my entire life. Um, so that was the inspiration behind the book. The book had started out as pretty much a journal, uh, a way of uh, a catharsis transformation within myself on paper, um, trying to get out the emotions and feelings involved and finding out that you have family that you never knew that you had um, and adjusting to that. So I had started to journal and over the course of time, um, the journal had turned into a novel. And although the novel is literary fiction, it is, um, it is based on my life. So it was a it was a very difficult book to write, but it was you know nonetheless extremely inspirational to me, and has been and has proved inspirational for a lot of people who have read it. So that's that's how that book came about. Okay, and we would like to mention that Thomas has agreed to send out a signed copy to one listener who leaves us a rating on iTunes within the next thirty days from this podcast broadcast. Please check the show notes for the exact date. And Thomas, thank you for doing that. Absolutely. My pleasure. So Thomas, you released Leaving Montana and it peaked on Amazon as high as 9,000 at a time when as many as 8 million books were listed on the site. That's like better than the top 1% on Amazon. How does that help you? How has that helped your career as a writer? And what type of feedback have you received? <laughs> it's it makes it sound so lucrative, doesn't it? Um, it well, it, now you're not going to quit your day job as a school teacher, are absolutely you? Absolutely <laughs> not. And let me tell you, I wouldn't be able to because it it is not a lucrative uh, situation. But nonetheless, the feedback has been amazing. Um, it, you know, it's very difficult when you're a first time author. Um, you know, there's there's a, just tens of thousands of amazing, completely talented writers out there. And when you're, you know, doing this for the first time and, and your, your main job is not as, you know, as a, as an established author, um, it, it's very hard to, um, figure out how, you know, to become one. So I was very lucky, um, to have found a very small press that was interested in the book and worked with me in publishing it. Um, a lot of the big, the, you know, the top six, it's very difficult to get there. Um, you need to have connections. And my connections are with, 
Patrick Medford schools. You know, I, this was my first time. So um, it, it's helped me in a, a little bit in with my career as, as a writer. Um, you know, it's established me as a credible, genuine writer that has talent. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, the, the people who've been reading it, you know, a lot of friends, family, coworkers, book clubs, um, and, you know, some top 100 and top 500 Amazon reviewers and bloggers have been really, uh, have been really happy with it. So basically at this point, you know, it's not a moneymaker, you know, it's, it, what it's doing is this book is establishing credibility for me. Um, it's gaining a following for me so that when it's time for me to, to, uh, look for representation for my second novel and maybe one or two of my children's books, people will understand that I'm not a fly by night writer. I'm not somebody who just happened to write a book um, and what is not interested in doing it ever again. Um, it's, it's giving me what I need. So in regards to, you know, the financial aspect, um, you know, most of the, the little bit of money I've made has gone right back into marketing because when you deal with a small press, a lot of the marketing you, you have to do yourself, right. you know, so it's gaining the Twitter followers, getting the reviewers, reaching out to bloggers. So um, hopefully when the next time comes around, um, it, it's helped me gain, it'll help me gain that, that representation that I'm looking for. Good. Now you're an accomplished writer, but how can a new teacher help their students tomorrow morning in the classroom become better writers? Well, you know, it really depends. Again, it all depends on the child's ability and age. Um, children all, I mean, as, as you know, and as all teachers know, children learn at different rates um, and some enjoy writing and some, and some don't. Um, writing can be a very pressured um, subject for students. You know, looking at a blank page and having to write words on it um, can be extremely frightful, extremely fearful for them. They, they look at a blank page and they, they, they all of a sudden shut down. They get that writer's block that is extremely frustrating. So I think what's really important for a new teacher to understand to help their children become better writers is, again, to set attainable goals. Um, you have to figure out what topics excite the children and it's not there. The topics are not going to be the same. So, I mean, the first step is really having a, a, a vast uh, library in your room with lots of different books about lots of different subjects. Readers, children who love to read will eventually love to write if they have the books in the classroom that spark the interest. So if you have children in the classroom who love sports, they're going to go to those sports books. And when it's time for them to write something, you can ask them, you know, well, I see that you were looking at some of those sports books. Do you happen to play any sports? Maybe you should write about an experience with a sport. What would you like to play when you get older? It's really, you really have to zone in on the child's interest in order for them to feel excited about writing. Also, the teacher has to be excited about the writing process. If, if it's something that you're not showing enthusiasm for, the children are not going to be enthusiastic to do it. So reading a funny book and then writing a short, funny story with them and then having them then go off and create their own funny stories, it, it's all about the process of doing that, setting attainable goals and celebrating the, the stories that they create, it could be three sentences long. It could be a page long. Right. If it's something that they wrote and they feel good about it, that's what you need to do. You need to go off of something that interests them and something that they're excited to write about. Right. Is there one book that you could recommend to our new teacher listeners that would help them become a better teacher? 
Absolutely. And I, I was really excited about this question. <laughs> um, actually, um, the, we, I'm extremely lucky to have an amazing principal in my building. Um, Rob Epstein has been the principal in my building for many, many years. And he started off this year by giving each one of us in the building a copy of Mindset, The New Philosophy of Success. It's written by uh, Dr. Carol S. Dweck, W uh, D W E C K. Um, once again, it's Mindset, an amazing book, an amazing book. Um, it's, it teaches you how you can learn to fulfill our potential, but not just as teachers, as colleagues, as, as, as friends, as parents. And it's all about reflecting on who we are, the way we teach, the way we can bring about the best in our children in the classroom. And it, it honestly, just in these short few months that I've been reading it, it has completely changed my, my outlook and has made me a better teacher. And what is one internet resource that a new teacher would benefit from that could really help them? Okay, well, I am a huge fan of a website called superteacherworksheets.com. Um, it, you know, a lot of people haven't taken the time to really look at it, but it's been around for a while. You know, when I first started out as a teacher, um, you, you know, you go to the teacher stores, you go to Barnes & Noble, you, you know, you, you're looking for all of these different materials and resources uh, beyond what you're given at school, you know, to make, you know, to, to help you and guide you either with lesson planning or thematic units or just for an additional creativity project in the classroom. This website, Super Teacher Worksheets, has everything that a teacher needs to establish a foundation. Um, everything from reading, writing, social studies, science, graphic organizers, lesson plan templates, um, whole thematic units. I mean, everything, everything and anything you can think of. So I'm a high, uh, I, I use it all the time. I, I can't talk about it enough. So I would definitely recommend that teachers use super teacher worksheets. Thomas, what's the best thing about being a classroom teacher? <laughs> It keeps my mind young. <laughs> uh, it really, really does. I, I you know, uh, when you're with children and, you know, they see that you're excited to teach and they're laughing and they're having fun and you're, you know, it really does keep you young at heart um, and it keeps you fresh and creative. Uh, I think that's what I really love uh, the most about being a classroom teacher. The teacher really, the, t the children really keep me going. Um, the little things, it's all the little things, you know, at the end of the day where they'll say, you know, oh, I wish it wasn't the end of the day or, oh no, it's vacation. I wish we can, you know, I, I, I don't, I want to stay here. I want to do another science experiment, you know, all these different things. It's just, it really does keep you happy and you're exhausted. Don't, I mean, don't get me wrong. You're exhausted by the end of the day, but I find, still find myself every night when I'm sitting home as exhausted as I am still laughing about so many of the things that happen during the day. So for me, uh, the best thing about being a classroom teacher is that the children keep me young at heart and they keep me creative. So you left the corporate world and now yes. your world is controlled by bells. <laughs> and if you have to go to the bathroom, you can't just walk out of the room. Yeah, you yeah, cannot accept phone calls during the day <laughs> unless it's during your lunchtime. But is there anything you miss from the corporate world? You know, honestly, uh, the one thing that I did miss, um, but I, but I still do is, uh, is, you know, 
dressing that way. <laughs> you know, uh, I, you know, I have, I happen to believe in dressing professionally, you know? Um, and yeah, I'm on the floor on my knees, um, you know, laying down and the kids in lit circles and stuff, but I'm still wearing dress pants, dress shoes, a dress shirt and a tie. But you I'm know? sure you have quite the tie collection now. <laughs> I have a tie collection. But let me tell you they you know, I, I keep, the, the the cheesy ties to a minimum, but I I do s- silly socks and hats for the kids. So um, when oh, the that's kids, great, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, it's hard to break out of that you know corporate dress, especially when you you know you feel like that's you know the way you should be represented. Um, you know, I'm very huge, I'm very big into you know looking and being professional, but I'll wear crazy socks for the kids, you know, with different designs on them, and I buy hats for the kids. So you know. When we're learning, we wear all wear our hard hats. When we're doing math, you know, um, we all wear our chef hats. Oh, that's neat. Um, so, you know, those are the things that I do in the class that bring down that that corporate professional <laughs> look uh, to a little bit more their level, which is a lot of fun. Again, it keeps me young at heart, you know. Tom, do you have a favorite educational quote to inspire our new teachers? I do. Um, I, I'm a firm believer in respect, and that's something that you know I hold uh, very high in the classroom from day one. So there is a, there is a, a quote, and it's the secret in education lies in respecting the student. Um, I think a lot of times, you know, everyone always thinks of the students need to respect the teacher, the students need to respect the parent, but we're forgetting about a huge part here. They deserve the respect just as much as we do. And, you know, every child is different. They all vary based on life experiences. They're all trying to understand who they are and how they're feeling. When you respect a child, a student in the classroom for who they are, what they're feeling, what they may or may not have been labeled from the previous year, you're showing them that you love them and that you understand them as as small human beings that are just like you. Um, what you are trying to teach them is that we have a mutual love and respect for each other. So when a teacher can show a child the respect and understand who they are and, and what they're feeling, the respect comes back for you tenfold. So the secret in education lies in respecting the student. That's a great quote. And who said that? You know what? I have no idea. It's anonymous. You know, um, I have it in my classroom. I got it online, um, but I really, I, it's always up there without a person. So obviously there's a, a a pretty amazing person out there who understood that respect in the classroom needs to be mutual in order for learning to take place. Okay, Tom, you ready for the final round, the final minute before the bell? I am. Okay. Morning person or night owl? Morning person. Mac or PC? Mac. Favorite book from your childhood? The Snowy Day. Your first paying job? I was a dishwasher at the Pine Hills Country Club. <laughs> <laughs> One television show that you try to watch every week? Ellen. The last music download or song playing on your iPod? Downtown by Macklemore. <laughs> <laughs> One famous person that you would invite for dinner, either living or dead? That would have to be Marilyn Monroe because I think that she didn't have the chance to really uh, – for people to really understand her. And I, I like that. It's an unexpected snow day. What are you going to do with this unexpected day off from school? Work on my second novel or my children's book that I'm currently working on. And the next item on your bucket list? 
to try and find literary representation um, for my second novel um, to boost my career. And there is the final bell. Tom, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Well, they can um, check out my website, which is www.thomaswhaley.com, or they can email me directly at booksinspireme at optimum.net. You've been listening to the New Teacher Podcast, and our guest today was Thomas Whaley. Tom, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you again to Tom for taking the time to talk with me on the New Teacher Podcast. Please remember to subscribe to the show and leave us a review to win a copy of Tom's book. Or you can visit our show notes page at newteacher.org where we will have links to purchase Tom's book. My guest next week is Jim Ford. Not only was Jim named the North Carolina Teacher of the Year, but he was also named as the Charlatine of the Year by Charlotte Magazine. In being named in this honor, Jim was also in the company of world-famous ballerina dancer Patricia McBride and a prosecutor who exposed a corrupt mayor from Charlotte. Well, that's our sixth show, and thank you for listening. This is the New Teacher Podcast, and I'm your host, Anthony Arno. Be well.